The scripture reading this week is the same as last week's, taken from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. So he came to a town in Samaria. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up in eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we, are no, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This morning we have the second installment of a two-part sermon we began last week on the subject of sharing your faith with others and inviting others to church. And I'll offer, for those of you who weren't here last week, I'll offer an abbreviated disclaimer of the the same disclaimer I, I kind of went through at length last week which is that these two sermons last week and this week are, are quite a bit narrower in terms of their intended audience and in terms of their applicability than our normal Sunday morning sermons. Normally we kind of have something for everybody, whether you believe or not, but these two sermons, um, for better or for worse, are directed at those who are committed to LMCC, committed to this church, and who are committed Christians. So if that doesn't describe you, uh, number one, that's perfectly fine. Number two, we're glad you're here still. And three, we hope you still listen in and eavesdrop and get something out of it. But four, I do hope you'll come back when we have a more typical sermon um, besides what we're talking about today. So anyway, last week we had four points in part one of the sermon. We looked at two uh, benefits to inviting other people and sharing your faith with others. And then we looked at two objections that you might have to inviting others or sharing your faith and looking at the benefits and the objections, we're kind of 
taken both sides of uh, what we have to do every time I'm trying to convince you to do something or expecting you to do something. You know, I have to play both offense and defense. I have to, on, on the one hand, show you why it's a good thing, the upside, the potential benefit of it, why, why there's a reason to do it. But then in playing defense, I have to also deal with your reasons for not doing it because there are plenty of those as well. We did both last week, and this week is as I was thinking about how we wanted to spend the, the second part of the sermon I want to focus exclusively on defense, just on dealing with two more objections that I think people have when it comes to sharing their faith or inviting other people to church. And the reason I want to do that is, as I, as I thought about it this past week, that's where the real issue is. I think that for, for most of you, you already know this is a really good thing to do. You're convinced of the benefits, you're convinced of the upside, which is actually why you feel really guilty for not doing it, because you know that there's this, this really great upside if you would do it, both for you and for the people that you invite, but then you still don't do it because you have these reasons not to do it. You have these fears, these excuses, and I want to deal with two more of those fears and excuses and objections this week that we didn't have time to look at last week. So first objection is I don't know enough to invite others. And the second objection is I'm not good enough to invite others. I don't know enough to invite others first and I'm not good enough to invite others second. Those will be the two sections to this morning's sermon. And in between uh, those two sections, we're going to do the same thing we did last week, which is have a couple of uh, pairs of friends from the church come up and share about this inviting and being invited and what it looked like for them. So first, I don't know enough to invite others. That's the first objection. Both of these objections, by the way, are taken from actual conversations I had with people this last week in response to last week's sermon. This was one of the things that came up. I don't know enough to invite others. What, is, what do I mean by that? Most of you already know exactly what I mean because you've thought this before. But just for those of you that, that haven't ever worried about this, I can explain it to you and then maybe then you can worry about it after you hear me talk about it. So what this is, is it's this fear that if you open yourself up and start talking about the fact that you're a Christian and start inviting other people to church, what that's going to do is it's going to open up this barrage of questions to you on uh, theological or religious or moral issues. You know, it's, oh, so you're a Christian. Well, in that case, tell me, what is your position on X? You know, whatever the, and usually controversial, whatever the issue is. And, you know, you might think that the way I'm going to respond to this objection is to say that never happens. People don't do that. People won't try to quiz you or grill you on these these hot-button issues. Uh, but I'm not going to say that because that would be dishonest. It's actually the case that this does happen, and it happens in New York more than it happens other places. This is pretty common. So I don't, I'm not trying to say that it's not going to happen. It's actually a justified fear and a legitimate fear. What I do want to say, the case I want to make is that Despite the fact that this does happen and people will ask you about this or that other issue or theological question, I want to make the case that you don't need to have answers to all those questions. You don't need to have a set of talking points. You don't need to have this memorized list of witty rejoinders and rebuttals before you start sharing your faith. And I want to make that case from this morning's passage. As Jane said, it was the same passage we had last week. Incredibly rich passage. We drew a couple of points from it last week, and we, we're going to draw a couple more points from it this week that we didn't have time to get to last week. So just to catch you up, if you weren't here last week on kind of the, the details of the narrative, 
Jesus meets this woman. She's a stranger that you meet by happenstance at this well. Uh, they're both there to get water. They start kind of chit-chatting, small talk about the well and about water. And then Jesus makes the conversation really serious, really fast, and says, well, you know, I can give you living water, a, a metaphor for eternal life, for quenching your, your soul thirst. And uh, I want to pick it up where we left off last week. Where we left off last week was uh, this intense moment of conversation where he says, I can give you living water. She says, okay, I'll I'll have some of this living water. He says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, that's true because you've had five husbands and the man you're with now isn't one of them. That's where we stopped last week. What I want to look at this week is what what does she say next? What's her move after that? Jesus has kind of just put her into a corner and uh, brought up a very personal, very touchy subject. How's she going to respond? What's she going to say to this? To to understand what she says, there's actually a little bit of comedic relief here in the passage in verse 19 when she responds. But to get it, you kind of have to have a pause to understand verse 19. So he says, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, that's true. You've had five husbands. The man we're with now isn't your husband. She says, I can see you're a prophet. (laughs) And you you have to have that pause there. She's processing. How does he know that? A, and then she's also trying to figure out what am I going to say now, you know, to get away from this very uncomfortable subject. And she figures something out, which is, well, I know what I'll do. I'll bring up a, a theological debate. And so she says to him, I can see you're a prophet. Well, tell me, what do you think about this issue? And she brings up an issue. The issue itself isn't very important. The, the point is just that it's an issue which divided her party, the Samaritans, from his party, the Jews. She had a position on it, and she knew with certainty that as a Jew, he would have the opposite position. She's, and the reason she's doing this, why is she bringing up this theological issue? She's, she's essentially trying to erect a wall. She's putting up a, a smoke screen because she feels uncomfortable because it's getting personal. And so she puts up this wall and she's hoping that she can get into a debate. Like I said, this happens all the time. I was at a, a party not too long ago and I was talking with somebody and they were telling me what they did for work and they asked me what I did for work. So I said, I'm a pastor and it's always interesting to see people's response to that. And In this case, the guy said, I'm a pastor. Without skipping a beat, he said, oh, really? Well, tell me, what's your position on euthanasia? Now, I just met this guy, you know, 30 seconds before. But what he's doing is the same thing the woman is doing. Because this guy, it turns out, had a very strong position in favor of euthanasia. You know, he was for it. And he guessed that as a Christian, I would be against it. And he's looking for something to disagree with me about, just like the woman is doing with Jesus. Because if there can be something you disagree about, then it takes the implicit offer off the table. What's the implicit offer? Even if you don't make this offer, the implicit offer is if you say you're a Christian, the implicit offer is, well, you could be a Christian too. And that's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable to have that offer sitting on the table. With Jesus, it was actually an explicit offer. He says, I can give you eternal life. Or maybe if you invite somebody to church, it's an explicit offer. Would you like to come to church with me? And so to put distance between yourself and that offer, you just need a point of disagreement. Because if I can say, well, this person's a Christian and they disagree with me about this issue or that issue, well, there you have it. You know, I don't agree with that, so I couldn't be a Christian. That's not for me. So how does Jesus respond to this? Well, what he doesn't do and this is the, the important thing to note, is he doesn't get into a debate with the woman about that subject. Because all that would do is build the wall higher. Instead, what he does is he dismisses that particular issue as peripheral. And so in this case, the, the issue was, it was about worship location. It was, she says, well, should we worship here? 
uh, in Samaria or on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It was a big debate in that day between the two groups. And what he says is, woman, believe me, a day is coming when you're going to worship the Father neither here in Samaria or on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. What's he saying? He's saying it's not the central issue. I'm talking about living water. I'm talking about eternal life. I'm talking about you, not about worship locations. That's not what this is about. Which is the same thing I said to the guy about euthanasia. Got the idea from Jesus. Uh, you know, he said, he asked me, and I said, well, you know, I have a position on that, but honestly, it's not really a central question for Christianity. The, the main thing for Christianity is, and then, you know, went on from there. And I hope you see where I'm going with this, because remember where we started. The objection is, I don't know enough. And the point is, you don't really have to know anything, because the, the thing that's being raised is usually just a smokescreen, not an earnest question. And, and honestly, the more you know, the more talking points you have memorized, the more of a temptation it is to get sucked into this de- debate, and then you lose the main thread. All you have to say is, that's, I don't know, that's a tough one. I don't really know about that. But I do know I like my church. Do you want to come with me? And, and I know you think, well, you know, that would never work. You know, how would, how would that possibly work? But it, it actually does work because the person you're talking to knows just as well as you do in their heart of hearts that they're just kind of throwing up a smokescreen. They know it too. One of the things I love about this passage is the, the way that the woman's role switches halfway through the passage. She plays two parts in the passage. So first, the whole passage is about inviting and bringing others. But first, she's the one being invited, being brought, being drawn in by Jesus. She's the one throwing up walls. Jesus is the one that's having to talk to her and, and gently bring her along. But then, halfway through the passage, she becomes convinced enough or, or at least intrigued enough to the point that she becomes the one that's the, the bringer and the inviter. And she goes and talks to her whole village. So that we were given two models of the same thing in the passage, two different iterations of it. First we see Jesus doing it with her, and then we see her doing it with her friends. And the reason I'm bringing that up at this particular juncture is because nothing reinforces this first point about you don't have to know anything better than the fact that this woman becomes such an effective witness. She just met Jesus. She knows absolutely nothing, and yet she's successful at getting the whole village to come. What does she say? Let's go back to the, the text to look at her technique. What she says is, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? She doesn't even know herself. She's not even convinced herself. She just is, is intrigued enough to invite other people. And it says, They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Incredibly effective witness, even though she knows not one scrap of theology, even though she has no bullet points, just because she's willing to invite, come and see a man. And it's based on her personal experience. It reminds me of the, the man that was blind and was healed by Jesus in John chapter 9. Uh, where he's later in that day, these all these you know religious authorities come and they're quizzing him all this stuff. Said, "Tell me this. Tell me this about the guy. What do you think about this?" Trying to get him into these theological debates, and they know a lot more theology than he does, so he's getting all mixed up. And finally, he just throws up his hands and says, "Look, all I know is this morning I was blind, and now I'm not." And that's essentially what what this woman says. She says, "Just come and see a man. This is what happened to me. Come and see a man." That's why we put the emphasis on these sermons 
on inviting other people to church rather than on explaining or defending your faith, which is a valuable thing in its own right and has its place. But what we're talking about is getting somebody into Christ's presence. That's what she does. She says, come out here. And for her, it's literal. You know, his physical presence, he's standing there by the well. Today, you know, you say, well, can't you meet Jesus anywhere? You can, but the church is the body of Christ. That's not an empty phrase. What that means is if you're going to meet Jesus, this is the easiest place to do it. Come and get them into Christ's presence. So that's the first point of the sermon, the first objection. I don't know enough. The answer is you really don't have to know much at all besides your own experience. Now, as I said, before we get to the second objection, we're going to have a brief interlude where you're going to hear two stories from two pairs of of friends who have done this recently at LMCC. So you can see both sides of it. We're going to first hear from Elle and Francesca, and then we're going to hear from Mickey and Amy. So, uh, Frankie, sorry. So um, first, please welcome Elle and Francesca. met Francesca almost four years ago, and just so we have a little bit of a backstory, because it's pretty cool how God was just awesome from the beginning, um, I moved to New York on a super short notice, literally in two weeks, had no place to live, um, got in contact with her over Facebook, and found out we were looking to live in the same building. Also quickly found out that I wasn't really old enough to rent an apartment, so I needed a chaperone, and um, I asked her, no, we had no idea who we were at all. And um, I was like, I am so desperate. Is there any chance that you can help me? And it was like my desperate plea. I couldn't move to New York if she didn't say yes. But neither of us really wanted to live with someone from school because our school just didn't recommend that. We were going to be spending hours together every single day. So we didn't need more of that. Um, But she actually said yes. I did. I did. And um, it was one of those things where, I mean, I remember we moved in and we barely talked. Like, we really did not even know each other. But there was something that I, I don't know, I just felt like God was going to do something. It was just like that initial feeling. It's like, all right, God, I don't know what's going on, but I feel like you're going to do something here. Um, So I started casually just saying I was, you know, going to church. Do you want to come? Didn't really get a lot of... Nothing really. Yeah, no, I, I was pretty like, oh, that's nice. Um, I'm going to sleep instead. Um, yeah, really. But it wasn't, I don't know, even though she wasn't receptive at first, I didn't, I really tried not to get discouraged because I really did feel like it was something that God was going to do. And I just prayed. And I found that through this journey, it helped me so much in my private prayer life to just be like, all right, God, like I see this goal. I see like this place that you want me to go. And so I just prayed all the time. And that was awesome for me, for her, for everyone. And I think the biggest lesson I learned, of course, she eventually said yes, as you'll hear in her side of the story. Um, it was that we can't change people. You know, we, God uses us as vessels. He puts us out there in the world to minister to people. But at the end of the day, we can't change people. God is the one who does that. And I think that was the biggest lesson that I learned is that we, we don't have the ability to make someone go to church. We don't have the ability to make to change someone's heart. But God prepares the hearts of these people and uses us to minister to them, and eventually you get an awesome friendship like this, which I'm so grateful for. I don't. Um, so um, Elle asked me to come to church throughout our first year of conservatory, and then finally in the second year I was like, okay, like I guess I'll go with you occasionally. Um, and so I think I... I mean, I definitely said no to her a bunch of times during that time as well. Um, 
But I ended up coming to LMCC maybe like five or six times spread out through that year. And I was very like, oh, this is nice, but I'm never going to be like them. Like, they're so into it. And this is like a nice thing. <laughs> like, but that's just like not me. So that occurred. Um, and all along I had like this really wonderful supporting kind of just like, oh yeah, if you want to come, that's great. And if not, like, okay. And she was like persistent, but I wasn't overwhelmed or irritated by it. Um, and so then at the end of our second year, a bunch of crazy things happened um, that in hindsight God was using and was amazing, but at the time was the worst thing ever. Um, my, I, well, I, I graduated conservatory and then I decided that I didn't want to do that anymore, and so that was really confusing, and so I enrolled in another school, having no idea what I was going to do. Um, and then my dad lost his job, and then both of my grandparents who um, helped raise me both died within a week of each other, and then a serious relationship that I was in ended abruptly and I was like absolutely done like I was really really not doing well and I had been like struggling with depression during that and then before that so it was a really awful time and Elle was away during the summer and so I was kind of um, having this really profound feeling of loneliness and loss um, and so I moved back to the city to start this new program when I didn't know what I was doing and I kind of wanted something that was familiar, but simultaneously like hadn't been touched by recent events. Um, and so I thought, oh, I guess I could go to LMCC. Like everybody's really happy there, <laughs> like, um, and they remember my name, so that feels nice. Um, <laughs> and so I texted my friend Rodney, and I said, like, are you going to church? Could I do that too? And he was like, yes, you should come. <laughs> um, and so I did, and. When I got here, I was like, okay, there's definitely something to this. Um, and then after that Sunday, I didn't miss a Sunday for a few months. And then after that, um, the Holy Spirit kind of took over and started changing my heart. And it was ridiculous, like pretty crazy stuff. Um, and to speak to a point that Ryan said last week about how you sh not, like, not wanting to invite that friend because you're like, oh, like there are certain people I'm not going to ask because they're definitely not going to come. I was definitely that person. Um, in fact, right after I started coming to LMCC, seriously, um, a friend of mine from home was like, this is very weird. You're like the least churchy person I know. So God clearly is not phased by it. Um, and so you should probably just ask those people anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah? yeah. And now please welcome Mickey and Frankie. I'll start. Um, it's actually strange to be up here because prior to this, I had never invited anybody to church before. In fact, even now, I've never invited anybody to church. <laughs> My wife, Amy, actually did the inviting, but she didn't want to come up and talk about it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it and hopefully, hopefully get a little of the credit, credit for it as well. So, But I, I'm pretty sure I'm the conversation with Ryan around, you know, the, the case that I made for why not has always been you know, I don't want to get into a debate with anybody. I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable enough or confident enough in my, in my knowledge of, of it or, or in my, my, my belief to really, to really defend it to, to others. So I've always just stayed away from the topic altogether. Um, in a sermon series last year, I think, leading up to Christmas, uh, Ryan kind of very specifically addressed that point. And his, the summary was really like what he talked about earlier today, which is, that's not really my job. It's not our job anyway to, to make the case. Really, we just do the inviting. In fact, he talked about 
if that was our job, we'd all, we'd all be horribly qualified at it anyway. So think, you can't really think of that as your job. We just need to invite, bring them to church, and then leave the rest up to, to God and, and Ryan to kind of close the deal. So <laughs> with that... With that newfound confidence, Amy and I actually actively kind of started talking and looking around and saying, you know, who might we be able to, to invite? So that's, that's kind of the backstory. So Frankie and I work together. Uh, we work for the same company. She was in the UK and I was in New York. So uh, we knew each other for about two years. And then she and her family relocated to New York about a year ago. So, you know, in the, in, in the context of the move, we invited him over for, for, for dinner and you know, we were just talking about kind of normal things. We had just moved to New York about three years earlier with kids about the same age. So we're talking about moving away from family and friends and kind of the social network uh, that we had where we used to live and, you know, the challenges associated with that. And frankly, actually opened the door very easily. We weren't, we weren't kind of waiting to kind of pounce on them with a church invitation. She just kind of, she just kind of opened it up and it was actually very easy to, to invite them. She said, uh, she asked, after only being here in New York for a couple, a couple of days or a couple of weeks, she said, where, couple days, where do you meet all the normal people, right? So for those, for those that moved here recently, you probably know what, what that feels like when you first move in is where are all the normal people. And we said, well, we've met a lot of normal people at our church. So we invited them to, to, to join us at church after that. So I'll let Frankie take over from there. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you, Amy, for inviting me. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm still looking for the normal people. So if you know any, please invite them. <laughs> um, but... But I, I wanted to be honest with you standing up here. I consider myself a learner Christian, so I, um, I'm still figuring this all out. Um, so that, you know, that being said, you know, I, sometimes I question whether I believe at all. Um, but that's okay. You know, this place is okay to, to be that person. And um, initially, I think um, we came for the community. And I'm nervous standing up here, so I'm going to have to just take a deep breath. We came for the the community and the sense of belonging, and we found that in abundance here at LMCC. So we joined the community group. That's 10 other people who I've come to know and love, who have honestly taught me more about myself and my faith than, 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 you know, and there's (laughs) this map sitting there making you smile, than I've ever had before. We went to the retreat, which was just a whole heap of fun. Um, My two girls simply love spending Sundays with Emily. Um, I mean, there's so many great things about this church that, that I could just wax on ad infinitum. But I don't like standing up here, so I'm not going to. Um, but, but most importantly, I feel like we stay because this is a place as a family that we can grow and learn and, um, and make friendships, forge bonds. And, you know, it's a, it's a home, essentially. And I can honestly say with my hand on my heart that this is probably one of the best things about moving to this city is finding this church. So huge thanks to Amy. <laughs> so close, right? Got it. <laughs> And indeed to all of you at LMCC, but I, I would say this, if you think if there's anybody that you may, you know, in the back of your mind think you could invite, invite them, because you really have nothing to lose, but they have everything to gain. And this is a wonderful place to be, so take that risk. We should probably just end after that, but I have these other things I plan to say and can't put them away, so... Um, the, the second objection, the rest of, we got about 10 minutes left. The way I want to spend the last 10 minutes is addressing the second objection. Uh, the first objection was, I don't know enough to invite others. The second objection is, I'm not good enough to invite others. Both of these objections are different ways of saying, 
Inviting others is something that other people are supposed to do. It's good for other people to do, but it's not me. I'm not the inviting type. So the, the first objection, you know, the thought goes, well, it's the people that are more well-versed in, in theology, the people that know their stuff more, the people that believe more solidly, you know, that are they're sure of what they believe. They're the ones that are supposed to invite. And someday when I become like them, when I learn more, when I, when I become more solidified and shored up in my beliefs, then I can be an inviter too. And we, we debunked that with the first portion of the sermon and with, with Mickey's testimony as well. The second objection is, it's a little bit different. You're thinking the, the inviters are supposed to be, the people that do the inviting, those are supposed to be the upstanding model citizens. You know, the people that have had their, their character and their tastes and their habits refined by Christianity. They're the, the ones that are supposed to be telling others about it. And me, I'm still a little bit rough around the edges, you know, so I, I wouldn't necessarily be a good person to do this. In fact, I, I might kind of be a bad advertisement for, for Christianity or for, for my church. I'm actually doing everyone a favor by keeping quiet about it because I don't want to give people the wrong idea. So what's the, the response to, to this objection? The response is actually very, uh, this one's too easy. You know, this, this objection doesn't have legs at all. It doesn't even get off the ground because the whole objection is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what Christianity actually is and therefore what it is that you're actually inviting people into. Honestly, it doesn't even, this objection doesn't even make sense. It's not coherent. It would be coherent if you're talking about another religion, but Christianity is not like other religions. So with with another religion, if the goal is to become good or to become moral or to become enlightened, whatever it is, and if the claim is this religion will make you good, then to be an inviter, to be someone that that is kind of a salesman for it, you better be good yourself or else, you know, you're going to be going and saying, hey, you know, this will make you good. And they say, well, you're not good, you know, so it doesn't, obviously doesn't work. But that's not what Christianity's claim is. That's not what Christianity is about. The claim isn't, hey, come meet this guy, Jesus, he'll make you good. The claim is, hey, come meet this guy, Jesus, he'll make you loved and forgiven and accepted. And if if that's the claim, then what that means is that the person that's going to be the best salesman for this, the best advertisement for it, is going to be exactly the opposite of the person you thought. Because if if the claim is, this will make you good, and you got to be good yourself to give it any credibility. But if the claim is this will make you loved and forgiven and accepted no matter what, then actually the more imperfect you are, the more credibility you give it. The better of an advertisement you are because your friend is thinking, well, if they can feel loved and forgiven and accepted with, with as messed up as they are, you know, then, then certainly I can too. You know, the, the fear is that you're going to be accused of hypocrisy. You know, you, you start inviting people and saying, I'm a Christian, and people say, well, you know, I didn't think Christians used that kind of language, or, you know, I was with you last weekend, and you had too much to drink. I didn't think Christians, you know, did that, you know, and so why, why should I do what you're doing? But that's not the claim. It's not based on your own goodness at all, and this is exactly what we see in the passage. You know, we mentioned a couple minutes ago about the woman's dual role, how she switches roles halfway through the passage, becomes an inviter, She's not hung up on this first objection about, I don't know enough, that doesn't stop her. And she also isn't hung up on this second objection about, I'm not good enough to do the inviting. She just goes and invites her whole village. Now, if anybody should have been hung up on this second objection about, I'm not good enough, it should have been this woman. She's had five husbands. 
That'd be an embarrassment even today. But think about in that day, in that traditional culture, what her reputation must have been like. And yet she goes and has the gall. She, of all people, has the gall to say, come on, come follow me. I found it. I found the way to salvation. Why on earth would she expect that anyone would listen to what she has to say? It's because of the content of her testimony that they listen. Remember the passage, there was that line, they believe because of her testimony. It's because of what she actually says. What she actually says is, come and meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. Now, don't, don't misunderstand that. It's actually easy to miss the significance of that statement the first time you read it because it's not necessarily there on the surface. It's not about, what, the, the emphasis isn't come and meet a man who knew everything I've ever done. Like it's this magic trick, like he's clairvoyant or he's got some power, you know, fortune teller or something. That's, that's not the, the big deal. It's much more impressive than that. It's much deeper than that. What she's saying is, come and meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Come and meet a Jewish rabbi who invited me to be his follower in a day when men didn't talk to women, Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, rabbis didn't talk to immoral people. And this Jewish rabbi invited me, an immoral Samaritan woman, to be his follower and offered me living water, even though he knows my whole story, even though he told me everything I've ever done. He knows everything. You can imagine one of her friends saying to her, he knows everything. He knows about Bill and Frank and Jim and Joe. And, and she says, yeah, he knew, he knew everything. He knew, he knew everything I've ever done, and he didn't care. He just offered me the water of life now. He offered me eternal life today. And if you think about it, it's, it's very remarkable. I mean, why wouldn't this Jewish rabbi say, you know, well, dear, you know, I, I know you mean well, you have good intentions, but you have a really bad track record. So why don't we do, we do this? Why don't you, you keep your nose clean for six weeks, let's say, you know, you keep to the straight and narrow for six weeks, pull yourself together. If you can do that for six weeks, then come back and we'll have a second appointment and I'll offer you uh, living water then, you know, I'll invite you to be my follower then, then maybe you'll be worthy of it. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, yeah, I know all about your sexual history. I don't care. I'm offering you living water. I'm offering you eternal life now. And when she tells everybody in the village that, she has their attention. Because they're thinking, if, if she can be accepted, then certainly I can be accepted. Which, by the way, you know, one of the implications of what we're talking about here is that there is, there's absolutely no inherent pride or arrogance or superiority for a Christian in sharing your faith with others or inviting others to church. Like we said earlier, that, that may be the case for other religions. You know, it could, if, if you belong to a religion where you're, the basis of your relationship with God is your own goodness, you have a relationship with God because you've been moral and you've done what you're supposed to do and been the right kind of person, then in that case, if, you are, if you're sharing your faith, there is a little bit of superiority because you're assuming you know, well, this, I know God, this person doesn't know God, doesn't have a relationship with God, so therefore I'm better than them. And you're, you're asking them to come up to your level and you're, you know, essentially going around and telling everybody I'm right and you're wrong and you should be more like me. But with Christianity, it's not like that at all. Because what if, what if the reason you've been loved and embraced and accepted isn't because of your good record, but it's in spite of your bad record. It's not because you're better than everybody else, but it's because you've come to a place of being able to admit that you're not better than anybody else. And what you need to be saved and accepted and loved is grace. 
See, if it's like that, then it's a completely different dynamic. Then there's no superiority at all. Then this person that you're inviting, that you're sharing with, that doesn't have a relationship with God, there's no reason why they couldn't be better than you. They probably are better than you. They may be wiser than you. They may be a better spouse or a better parent than you. They may have more self-control than you. And one, that shouldn't bother you or surprise you at all that that's the case. But two, it doesn't undercut your invitation at all because your invitation isn't about goodness. It's not based upon your own goodness. Your invitation is just come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done and loved me anyway. This woman in the passage, she, she doesn't let the excuses get in the way. She goes and invites her whole village. She doesn't let this excuse, I don't know anything. She doesn't say that. She doesn't say, I'm not good enough. She just goes and she invites. And this Easter, we need to do the same. We've got three weeks until Easter Sunday, three weeks from today. Make it happen. Let's pray. God, every one of us is here today because somebody invited us somebody told us, somebody took the time to draw us in. And it's so easy for us to forget that. I pray this morning that you remind us of that. We don't know why you choose to use us. We're such a a flawed mechanism for getting your work done in the world. We know you care about these, these people that are in our lives so much more than we do on a level we can't understand, and yet you entrust the work of drawing them to you. You entrust that to us. So we want to repent and ask your forgiveness of the ways we've failed, of the ways that we haven't taken this as seriously as you do. And we want to bring our fears and our objections and our worries to you this morning and lay them down, lay them at your feet, and ask you to fill us with your love, with your humility, with your joy, so that inviting others and sharing what we have with others would be natural. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.